Hey there, my name is Jonathan Galvan, and I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer. Uh, we're so glad that you're tuning in to this sermon, and we pray that this sermon would be an encouragement to you. So please enjoy. Amen. Uh, write this down, if you can, at all, ever possible, don't follow the children's choir. It is a tough show to follow, unless you come bearing uh, and heralding good news of the gospel of Christ, uh, then everything will be okay. I got a couple announcements for you. First off, my name is Jason Hatch. I'm the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. And again, if you're brand new with us, welcome. Uh, this is not a normal setting for us, uh, both the Children's Choir and the Bleachers. This is about once a year uh, that the school has a, an event where they set up the risers and uh, we get to um, be flexible with them. And so we used to call them riser Sundays, but somebody let me in on a little dad joke this morning. It is now just called riser and shine. Y'all like that? If you like that, it will probably appear again next year. Um, a couple quick things, mainly about this upcoming weekend, which is Easter weekend that I want you to know about, uh, participate in, and help us get the word out. Uh, first thing, I want to deeply, deeply from my heart invite you to be a part of what's taking place on Good Friday. Uh, so noon on Friday in this room, uh, we're going to have a very special service uh, to reflect upon the cross uh, and the death of Jesus and Personally, I think if you want to, to really feel uh, the entirety of the weightiness of the uh, Easter season, uh, you need to lean into to, to Good Friday. Uh, if we show up just to celebrate on Sunday the resurrection, we miss a big portion of reflecting on the weight of Jesus's crucifixion and why he had to die. Um, that uh, uh, there's a portion uh, that we get to learn and feel and lean into on Good Friday. That uh, it was it was our sin uh, that caused the cross to happen, and we need to. To feel that to a sense because on Sunday we get to be reminded that that burden has been lifted and removed. Uh, so Friday, uh, kids are welcome in here. We do not have Redeemer Kids open for that service, but we would really invite you to bring your children if you have them uh, along with you for Good Friday. Uh, and then Easter morning, Sunday morning, we have three different services. So listen to this. Normally I have two services. Uh, this Easter we have three, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 o'clock. And uh, the 8 o'clock service, there's no Redeemer Kids, but in the second Second to, uh, there is Redeemer Kids for five years old and under. And if you're a covenant partner, uh, especially, and uh, maybe you don't know which service uh, you are going to, can I just kind of gently push you either the, to the first or the third? We're anticipating the second one is probably going to be fairly full. So if you have the flexibility, that will help us out a lot. Uh, and we are having brunch that will start uh, at 10 o'clock. Uh, and we're going to throw up the campus map here. You'll notice that I asked uh, them upstairs, I said, is that the white box? And they told me the box was what? Blue. I'm colorblind, now you know. So the bluish-white box there, uh, that's uh, kind of the playground area. That's where brunch is going to be. Uh, bottom left corner is where you are now. Top right corner is where kids are, just so you kind of know um, after but before the service, wherever that fits in for your schedule, uh, 10 o'clock that morning is brunch. Uh, and we, listen, we are doing pictures, but we are not taking the pictures, okay? Uh, this is going to be a little bit different from most of the Easter's. We're going to have some backdrops set up uh, where you will be able to take your own family pictures with your own phone. Uh, we are not this year providing the photographers and taking weeks to kind of get all that sorted out. So um, you can address accordingly to that. And last but not least, uh, this really is for everyone, uh, but especially for, again, uh, the covenant partners. Uh, Easter is the, it's the story of Jesus serving us. Amen? 
Jesus, like, submitting himself uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross to serve us. And so I would love to invite you, if you are a part of Redeemer, find a place to serve. Uh, we send out a massive needs list. It takes a lot of servants uh, to be able to serve all of the different needs, really every Sunday, but especially on uh, Resurrection Sunday. So I would encourage you to go find a place on that needs list to sign up to serve. Uh, a lot of different options, and we'll probably send that out again uh, sometime early this week so that you can find a place. I would love to invite you to find a service where you can attend and worship and find a service where you can serve. All right. Uh, with that in mind, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, um, to turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, most of the text will be that I read this morning will be here uh, on the screen for you. And as you get to Matthew 21, I'm going to explain the backdrop to Palm Sunday. Everybody say Palm Sunday. That's what we're celebrating today, and I recognize that probably many of you wonder, why is it called Palm Sunday? What does that mean? What, what are we actually talking about? Um, so I want to get a little bit of a backdrop to what's taking place before we read the text uh, that outlines and describes what happened uh, to Jesus on Palm Sunday. Um, Palm Sunday marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. So 33-year-old man had already preached and taught and uh, raised some disciples and done uh, incredible miracles and proven who he was. Uh, and then he is uh, turning his attention the last week towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards the cross. Uh, and Palm Sunday marks the beginning of that last week, some call it Passion Week, uh, where Jesus enters Jerusalem on a Sunday. And we'll look at the details of that in a moment. But then he'll spend the next few days... Uh, fitting in some of his last-minute teaching, uh, training the disciples, uh, going through the temple and doing some things uh, in the temple. Uh, and then uh, ultimately, he will be betrayed and crucified a few days later on Friday. And then the next Sunday, he will rise from the grave. And so this marks the beginning of this last week. And on Palm Sunday, what you have a picture of that we're about to read is Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Now, he had been probably weeks, maybe months prior to this, spending most of his time doing ministry out in rural areas, uh, but the Passover uh, was, was, was happening, and so a, as a good Jew, as most Jewish people in the entire world at that point were doing, they were finding their way towards Jerusalem to be there for Passover and to celebrate and to reflect on the past, the Passover. And Jesus had been there many times. No doubt Jesus had made this pilgrimage uh, 33 times uh, where once a year he would make sure that he was in Jerusalem. Um, but ultimately, this one would be very different, and Jesus knew it. You need to know that Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. So I want to read a little bit of what Jesus said just not too long before Palm Sunday. Uh, Luke 18, you don't have to turn there, but it will be here on the screen for you. This is Jesus giving his disciples a heads up that Palm Sunday and this whole week is going to be very different than the last times they were there. Jesus says this, taking the 12, that's his disciples, his apostles in training, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man, meaning the Old Testament is full of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of who this Christ Messiah would be, where he would be from, what he would do. And Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill every single one. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he, referring to himself as the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles 
and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. That was very much in the mind and the heart of Christ when he is entering Jerusalem for what he knows to be the last time. Passover week. It's so important to understand the setting of what's taking place on Palm Sunday uh, because this is Passover, and Passover was a tradition and a celebration and a reflection that had been taking place for centuries. I'm not going to recap the whole story. Most of you know it. When uh, when God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God rescues them, and the the tenth of ten plagues is the Passover lamb, and uh, they're called to to slaughter to sacrifice this very very innocent little lamb wipe the door, the blood over their doorpost, and then when an angel came through, would see the, the innocent lamb's blood and would pass over and would save and would spare them. And so every year they would reflect that on the fact that God had grace and mercy on them and he passed over them. And so like the city of Jerusalem would swell exponentially uh, because all of the Jewish people throughout all of the Roman Empire, uh, some in Northern Africa to Asia to Europe, would migrate their way back to Jerusalem for normally for weeks. And there would be camps set up all over because the city would swell to upwards of a million people, a million people that were all trying to buy enough uh, lambs and enough uh, doves and enough uh, sacrifices so that they could take those into the temple. And they were going to the temple and there were rabbis that were teaching Jesus being uh, one of them. And so that's kind of the, the commotion that's in the backdrop of Palm Sunday. Uh, there, there's lots of commotion about Passover there's a lot of commotion about Jesus because Jesus had turned the world upside down. Everyone was talking about him, who he was, what he had been doing. Uh, and so if you found your way somehow to a campfire, uh, maybe on the outskirts of Jerusalem, no matter where you went, there were probably whispers uh, about Jesus uh, because he had raised such a commotion. And not only was commotion kind of rising, but uh, tensions were rising mainly between the religious leaders of the day, namely the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes claimed that they spoke for God, uh, and Jesus said that they were lying, basically. He would come and present something very different. And so you see this rising tension uh, between the two about who's really in charge and who really is, is speaking the truth. And that had come to a head in really the last few weeks of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and uh, it's just a strange power struggle to see who is in charge. And I just want to say this, um, like God is, he's so precise and it's just absolutely no accident that Jesus is marching into Jerusalem to lay his life down during Passover. Uh, I, I think there's a way in which uh, you can kind of s- think maybe, maybe God was looking at, uh, at things from one perspective, like, oh, wow, Jesus has to die. Boy, wouldn't it be cool if we kind of orchestrated it on Passover. But he, he, he wasn't, I don't think, looking at it that way. I, th- I think it was like from, from the beginning of time, Jesus stood as a lamb slain before the foundation, so God designed Passover second. 
Like the, the, the death of Jesus was designed first, and so God wove into their, their, their national fabric for centuries this celebration and preparation. And so it's just, don't, don't let it be lost on you that Jesus is walking in to fulfill centuries of the Passover because he is ultimately the Passover lamb. That gets us up really to what takes place in Matthew chapter 21. So if you're there and you're ready, say, ready. God's word says this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, being the 12 and Jesus, they came to Bethpage just outside of town to the Mount of Olives and Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her that's a young donkey. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took, uh, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then he is going, to, Matthew is going to quote um, the prophet Zechariah. This is from Zechariah chapter 9, who hundreds of years before Palm Sunday, he, he, through the Spirit of God, gave a prophecy about this Messiah or King that would be the Messiah, the King that all of the Old Testament is looking forward to. Zechariah prophesies in, in great detail uh, some descriptions about this King. And he says this, he says, uh, was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, that's kind of a, 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 a way to uh, talk about the Jewish nation, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did then just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he, Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Like this is the picture that Jesus is now on a little donkey. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever ridden a little donkey. Probably not many of you. Um, I actually have. When I was about eight years old, I was at a farm. This is not going to surprise many of you. Uh, we were buying some beehives that we bought off of the thrifty nickel, which was like, for those of you who might be older, that's the precursor to Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, like it was incredible. That was our, our pleasure reading back in the day was just looking through the thrifty nickel. So we go, there's a baby donkey. I get on this baby donkey. He immediately proceeds to buck me off. It's the most shameful uh, event in my like life. I just, I couldn't even ride this pathetic little baby donkey. Like th that's, that's what Jesus gets on to make his, what we'll call the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And everybody's just like, oh my gosh, that's him. This is Jesus. We've been talking about him. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people probably were talking about him. And now he's going to march into Jerusalem. There he is on a donkey. People are getting excited. Verse 8 again. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road. They're taking their expensive cloaks off, putting it on the dirt, on the ground, on the road. And others, they cut branches of what kind of tree? Mesquite. No, it was palm. You got it. Uh, <laughs> palm branches, this is why we call it Palm Sunday. They cut palm branches off of the trees and they spread them on the road and the crowds that went before. You just kind of picture this entourage. Anybody ever seen Aladdin? 
Do you remember that, that scene where he's kind of coming in and there's just this big entourage and there's people everywhere and it's just kind of like this, this excitement of ushering the, the king into his, his capital, his kingdom. The crowds that went before him and that followed him, I mean, people before, people after, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they're so excited because they, they, they kind of recognize a, a truth. They miss a whole lot, but they think this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. The Old Testament has talked about for centuries, the king that we've been longing for, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to rule and reign once and for all. He's going to get these dadgum Romans out of here. They don't get to tell us what to do. We're going to have our promised land back. We're going to be able to do whatever we want. We're going to throw off the oppressors. Jesus is going to lead a revolt, and this is going to be our moment. They're so excited. And now this is a moment. Moment, right? If you're going to capitalize on a revolt, then you do it when there's about a million Jewish people around, right? Like this is it. They're so excited. I mean, they're, th they're getting their guns out, right? They didn't have guns. I recognize that. But like basically they were thinking like, okay, where are my weapons? Like what, what are we going to have to do when Jesus calls this and, and a revolution starts, we all have to jump in because this is our moment to get the Romans out of here and we're going to follow King Jesus. That's what they're expecting. That's what they're shouting. Verse 10. And when he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city, again, hundreds of thousands of people, was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You may not know this, but this was not the first time a king would march into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hundreds of years before, uh, most of you know who King David is. Uh, he was one of the most revered and honored kings in Israel's history. Uh, just an incredible icon, an incredible king. Uh, and uh, he was getting towards the end of his life. He was old. He was uh, faint. He knew that his time was coming. And so he anoints one of his sons. He has multiple sons. Uh, he anoints one of them named Solomon uh, to be the next king. Solomon, he says, you're going to be uh, the next king. Uh, Solomon, though, had a brother, another one of David's sons, uh, named Adonijah. Uh, and Adonijah decides, you know what? It's a little sibling rivalry situation. He goes, no, I want to be king. Uh, and so he begins to uh, build some alliances. Uh, he, he forges a military partnership and a priestly partnership. Military is a guy named Joab. Uh, the priestly partnership is a guy named Abiathar. Uh, so he goes, Adonijah goes behind the scenes, and he's trying to get some military leaders on his side and some relig religious leaders on his side. This would be akin to a presidential candidate that wants to become president, wants to get a vote. So he tries to find a successful general uh, to endorse him, tries to find some really well-known pastor to endorse him. Uh, that's what's taking place uh, under the scene because he's staging a coup and he wants the throne. He doesn't want uh, Solomon to have the throne. When David dies, he wants to step in. Well, uh, David's wife, Bathsheba, okay, she hears word that this is taking place. And so she tells her husband, she, she, she alerts King David uh, that this uh, attempted coup is taking place. And this is how David responds, okay? He gets a prophet 
and a priest and one of his kingly advisors, and, and he brings them together. You can go read this in 1 Kings. It's a fascinating story early on in 1 Kings. Uh, and he talks to them, and he basically plans this triumphal entry where he goes and he invites them to get the royal mule, right, the royal donkey, which sounds like an oxymoron, does it not? If you were to be like, hey, go get the royal donkey, you're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that means. But yet there was one. Uh, it, was, it was somewhat like David's Air Force One, like that was the, the royal donkey. And he goes and he gets the royal donkey and he puts Solomon on the donkey and he leads him across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem before the coup can take place. What he is doing functionally, he is declaring very deliberately, this is the king. Y'all with me? Solomon is the king. Everybody knows now, and then he marches him through town, and there's this huge celebration, and he is anointed and enthroned as a king, and now there's no more question, and the coup kind of dies. That's the first time it happens. And so when Jesus is retracing the steps of this event, I mean, he's going in the exact same location. Why? Be, be, because he, he's declaring like that he is not, not a king. He is declaring that he is the king that he's, he's a better king than all those that were uh, in charge. He's a better king than David. He would be a better leader and a better king even than, uh, than Caesar. Uh, and, and so that's kind of what's taking place uh, behind the scenes in, on Palm Sunday and the triumph, triumphal entry. Now, why this is important for us and why, why do we take some time to think through uh, really every year Palm Sunday and what happened? I would say this event, uh, it, we need to give it a lot of weight because it's, it's incredibly important. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all mention this event. And that's not the case of most stories. Most stories that we have of Jesus, they're, they're, they're not mentioned in every one. But this is an important one uh, because it does a few things. One, it's just this monumentous declaration that Jesus is the king. But then we learn some things about Jesus uh, and the type of king he is that we need to know. First, it's a declaration that Jesus is the king. Jesus is saying the Pharisees and the scribes were not on the same playing field. I am the true king. There was an exp I've wondered this my whole life. Like, why could so many Jewish people who who loved God and loved and believed the Old Testament uh, kind of be excited when Jesus is coming into town but then when he's crucified, they reject him as the Messiah. And even to this day, many are still looking for the Messiah because they thought, like, he couldn't be the one because he lost. Like, if he was going to set up his kingdom and beat the Romans, he did a pathetic job. And so what was it that they missed? This is what they were expecting. Uh, both many of the Jews that day and even some Jews on the planet today uh, that would say Jesus is not the Christ, is not the Messiah, is not the king, they were looking for what, what we know now of as, as the second coming, like Jesus is coming twice. He came once uh, as a humble servant to die, and he's going to come the second time to destroy all of his enemies and to rule and reign forever. And so that they didn't recognize that all of the prophecies in the Old Testament are referring to two different things. So they thought that, that Jesus's movement and him as a king was just simply too small. Like it can't be him 
he, he ran out of steam so quickly. This revolt got snuffed out so quickly. Jesus didn't even try that hard. He wouldn't even, he told his, his leaders to put their swords away. He's just not a really good revolutionary because they thought what, don't, don't miss this. They thought what Jesus was doing was too small. And in reality, what Jesus was doing was way too big for them to comprehend. That he wasn't just going to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and be the king for a, a generation. Like, could you imagine if they were here now and seeing what Jesus has actually accomplished, that he is pushing a kingdom to the edges of the earth, that he's inviting people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language to worship him, that there's going to be two and a half billion people that are singing to him and praising him and worshiping him and praying to him? Like, like they, oh my gosh, Jesus, they, they thought he was too small. It's like, no, you have no idea that it was so much bigger than they could imagine. He is setting himself up to, to die for the sins of the world and to set himself up as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all the earth. They could not imagine something to that scale. How did they miss it? It's not because they were thinking too big. They were thinking too small. What, what does Palm Sunday reveal to us? Again, if it's important that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this, why is it and what should we learn? What does it reveal? It, it reveals a handful of things, and we could probably spend weeks talking about it, but I'll boil down to what I believe are the high points. Uh, number one, the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a baby donkey, of all things. It reveals, number one, that Jesus is humble. That Jesus is, is, is wildly humble. The, like the king of the cosmos that created everything is going to have his march into somewhat of the capital city and he's going to do it on a, there's just something very, very humble about that. Uh, could you imagine uh, a few decades ago, World War II, maybe let's just say that there was a general uh, that was just wildly successful and he was victorious and he defeated all the enemies and then he came home and they put on a huge celebration for him uh, in, in New York City and they shut all the streets down, they invite people out, there's a huge parade uh, and here he comes, there, there's an entourage and drums and cheerleaders and a band coming before him and there's some after him and then in the middle, there he is in a beat-up, rusty old 65 Volkswagen Beetle, right? If you drive a Volkswagen, please, no offense. It's like, that doesn't fit, right? That, that, that's what, it didn't fit to have a king riding a donkey. Why was that? Jesus was making a, a very, very clear and solid declaration that he is humble, and I think there's a way in which, uh, this is probably not the whole reason behind it, but uh, I think part of what Jesus was doing was trying to connect and identify with the common man. Because if he came in on a war horse that had armor and white and dazzling, uh, it would seem like, oh, you know, upper class, way upper class, and we can't, uh, we can't identify. But he's identifying and connecting uh, with common people in his entrance to Jerusalem. If he wanted to just kind of flex who he was in this moment, he would have had an incredibly brilliant-looking, white, fit war horse, fit for a king, but he has a donkey. Listen to what uh, Stanley Hauerwas says in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He says, Jesus is giving us a satire on triumphal entries. 
On the one hand, this looks like all the other triumphal entries. And he mentions another one. He says, 200 years uh, earlier, Simon Maccabeus had defeated foreign armies and he kept Israel independent. And he rode into Jerusalem with people shouting cheers and waving palm branches because he delivered them. But this triumphal entry parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battle do not ride into their capital cities riding on mules, but on fearsome horses. But this kind does not. And he will not triumph through force of arms. We recognize in the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday that Jesus is humble. That sets him apart. Second thing, Jesus is a servant. Everybody say servant. So incredibly important for us to realize the type of king Jesus is. It's not uncommon uh, for most kings and rulers to ask their people and their military to go to war, to sacrifice themselves, to die for them. But it's unheard of for a king to get off his throne and to come lay his life down for his people. And yet that's what Jesus is doing. In, in Isaiah 53, this is one of my favorite passages. You know this. I've quoted it often. This is 700 years before Christ, giving us a very clear description of the Messiah. And it paints the picture. Virtually every theologian that's written about this chapter just basically calls this chapter, the headline is, the suffering servant. Like when you read this about the, the Messiah, you come to the conclusion that he is, he's come to serve. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What you see that Jesus was on a mission to, to serve, to lay his life down for someone else as a servant. Jesus is humble. Jesus is a servant. Number three, you see that Jesus triumphs through love and sacrifice. That he has built a kingdom and, and amassed followers and worshipers like no one else in history, but he has done it like no one else in history. I, I quoted this a couple weeks ago, I, I think. Um, it, it, it fits so well. Just give me the grace and the freedom. I'm going to quote this again. This is Napoleon um, Bonaparte, not dynamite. Very different. Uh, Napoleon, great conqueror, and, and he said some very pointed uh, and actually some very wise things about Jesus. I don't think he was a Christian from what I've read, but, but he sure nailed it on some things about Jesus. He, uh, Napoleon says this. He says, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Okay, let me step in, give a little parentheses. Jesus was a man. He was 100% man, 100% God. We call that the, the hypostatic union. But what, what, what he's saying is like, he's not like anyone I've ever met. So if I can rephrase what he's saying, not that Jesus was not a man, is that Jesus is in a category all by himself. He says this, I know men and I tell you Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. But that resemblance, he says, does not exist. 
There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. He says, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? He says, upon sheer force. And he says, but Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Jesus is a king, and he is building a kingdom, but he is not going about it by force and weapons and arms. He's going about it by love and sacrifice. That's what makes Palm Sunday such a strange and such a unique thing, that he is going to conquer, he is going to triumph, but he's going to do it through love and sacrifice. Number four, you need to know this. Not only do we know that Jesus is humble, that Jesus is a servant, that Jesus triumphs through love and sacrifice, but the picture that we get in, the, in, in Palm Sunday and in the triumphal entry is not just those things about Jesus, but in learning those things about Jesus, what we learn is that this is demonstrating to us also how we must enter the kingdom. That if Jesus leads the kingdom as the king in a, in a loving and a sacrificial and humble way, then you see throughout all the Bible, the only entrance you can gain into the kingdom is Christ, of Christ is by the way of humility. It's the way of what Jesus calls in the Sermon on the Mount spiritual poverty. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Meaning you have to, and if you want to be part of Jesus' kingdom, here and now and later, like if you, want, if you want to be a Christian, you want to have your sins forgiven, the Holy Spirit to uh, fill you up, to change your life, to, to, like, to, to, to renovate your life down to the core here and now. And if you want to be in heaven with Jesus forever, the only way that you get in is through the path of humility. Because anybody that shows up to Jesus with pride saying, here's what I've done, here's my resume, here's what I bring to the table, you just simply don't get in. The only ones that get in, I am quoting Zach Ellis. He, he shared this at our men's uh, time together uh, Wednesday morning. He says, the only thing that you need is need, and most of us don't have it. Y'all catch that? If you want to be a Christian, the only thing that you have to have is nothing. You have to show up with nothing. You have to take the humble way that I have nothing to offer you. As Isaiah said, all of my good deeds are like rags, you, you have to show up with nothing because so many times we show up with, well, I'm, I'm a decent person and I tried to fix this and I'm working really hard on this and here, do you see what I've done? Do you see what I haven't done? I haven't done what they've done. And we just kind of show up with a little, we try to piece together a little something. It's like, sorry, that's the wrong ticket. You only get in by the way of humility when you show up with nothing. Say, I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness I need his righteousness. I need his sacrifice on my behalf. The only thing you need is need, yet most of us don't have it. We show up with something. One commentator said this. He said, Jesus chose a baby donkey, which is most comical. He says, it's a very deliberate and a clear fulfillment of scripture. He's coming into rule and he's coming into save, but not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. He's going to triumph through weakness, 
And so my followers can only come to salvation by repenting and admitting their needs. We're not saved by our good works or by a, quote, strong Savior. Do works and be like me. A lot of people aren't strong, he says. It's salvation through weakness that, so that people can have free grace of salvation in spite of their sins. It means that anybody can come in. You, you learn that the pathway of getting into the kingdom, becoming a Christian, is not the pathway of pride, but it's the pathway of humility, asking Jesus to save you, to change you, to forgive you, knowing that you bring nothing. And in the Bible Belt, you need to know that. Because so much of us, we bring, our, we bring our morality and you don't get in. Why? Because God has designed the gospel so that the credit and the glory terminates exhaustively on Christ. So that he gets 100%. Now, so that we get to heaven one day, we're like, oh man, I'm so glad Jesus and I partnered to get us here. It's like, no, 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 if that's our stance, you don't get in. There's not, like, in, in, in glory, there, there, there is no one that gets the glory other than Jesus. So no one gets in unless they're willing to admit that from the beginning. So, like, the, the, the first coming of Jesus, that, listen, a lot of people were skeptical for centuries. They're like, those God followers are out of their minds to think that God might become a man and he would infiltrate humanity and he would be perfect and he would be born of a virgin. They were just, like, so skeptical. Uh, and then it happened, right? And then Jesus, against all odds, visited earth and proved everyone wrong. Listen, there's a lot of people that think we're ridiculous for thinking that Jesus Christ is going to come back to earth in bodily form a second time. It's going to happen. I'm just saying it's going to happen just as sure as he was born in a manger. He's going to come back, and it's not going to be the same way. When he comes back the second time, he will come as the king of all kings to rule and reign forever. And at that moment when he comes, it's not going to be like the first coming, like, I wonder if that's the Christ. I wonder if that's the Messiah. I don't know. We'll kind of feel it out. <laughs> no one's going to doubt. No one will doubt. Everyone will know not just what, that, that it's Christ coming, but who he is. And the word of God says that in that moment, everyone those who accepted Christ and those who rejected Christ will feel the weight of his glory, will know who he is. Some will respond with gratefulness from heaven. Some will respond with regret from hell. But this is what the word of God says. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind, Paul says to Christians, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, though he was in the form of God, part of the Trinity, he was equal with God forever. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. means he didn't hold on to it so tightly he couldn't uh, come to us. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. You see that in the triumphant. Jesus is a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Jesus is humble by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every single human knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see such an incredible picture of Christ in his, in his humility, in his service, in his love, in his sacrifice to give us an invitation to repent and believe and be saved and be changed. And so a Christian right now is someone who has recognized the glory of Christ and we bend our knee here and now. Palm Sunday. It's not just a, f- a fun story to hear. It's not even just things to, to know about Jesus, but there should be some type of response. Listen, maybe never in your life, you've heard a lot of things about Jesus or about Christianity, but never in your life have you truly personally responded to the gospel with need, saying, Jesus, I need you. You're perfect. I'm not. You're sinless. I'm not. I need you. Will you forgive me? Will you accept me? Will you embrace me? Will you save me? Will you adopt me? This is why the, 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 the invitation Jesus gives, it's so exclusive and inclusive. It is wildly exclusive, meaning you only come through Jesus and you only come with repentance and faith but it's open to anyone. The absolute worst of the worst. Some of the most sinful people in the Bible get to lead the charge for Jesus because he's that kind of savior. You need to respond. You need to respond. He is the king of all kings. There's a new, there's a better king. Let me invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray together. Jesus, we know that you right now, you are alive and you're well, you're risen, you've conquered Father, you conquered Satan, sin, and death through your death in our place for our sins on a cross. You spent three days in a grave and you rose from the dead for our justification. Father, I pray that you might give us an incredible glimpse of who you are through Palm Sunday. God, I pray that it would move our spirits. God, that it would allow us to worship you and to know that you truly are in a category all your own. There's no one like you. There's no one who has done what you have done. Father, I ask this morning that you would invite someone into your kingdom this morning, that you would save someone, that someone in this room would put their faith in you as their savior, that you would change their life forever. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, we need you. And all of God's people said together, Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.